Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Dr. Ian Charlton, Chair of NHS Curnow Clinical Commissioning Group. Ian, hello. Hello. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. We might as well dive straight in. What does the word leader mean to you? So, leader for me um, means, um, I, sp- I suppose, being able to, to, to listen and understand what uh, what the needs of uh, um, the, the work you're involved in, uh, and then be able to try and influence that and put your um, uh, your sort of uh, views forward to try and um, change and improve things. And how would you describe your personal leadership style? So my day job is a GP. I spend half of my life um, working in my GP surgery, seeing patients with very real problems. And and the other half of my life is the chair of our clinical commissioning group, which uh, is involved in commissioning health and care services for our population here in Cornwall in the Isles of Scilly. So my my style very much is, um, I try not to be directive. I don't feel I'm, I say I'm a directive person. Uh, I'm very much a, a reflector, try to see things in that bigger picture and then trying to see opportunities and then work with people uh, to see how we can realize those opportunities. And of course, you're dealing with people who aren't always at their best when you see them. Um, Of course, I know uh, personally when I feel ill, I get very, very grouchy. Um, And I know that dealing with people in these sorts of circumstances can be stressful, not only for yourself, but also for your staff. How do you manage um, people's stress levels within the uh, situation? I think, by, by, as you say, by recognising that we all work and, uh, and live in, in a stressful environment and uh, stress is important in, in, in trying to um, look for opportunities because uh, stress is an important um, uh, influence over being able to change things. So being able to use stress and, and use where you see uh, things are not quite going um, as you might, might see in a perfect world, to so actually use that as an opportunity to see where's the opportunity for change. Now, of course, uh, that is an interesting perspective. I I come from a a bit of a background where when I was at school, I was taught that stress was a good thing and that you could harness it to to fulfill your ambitions. Um, I know that we have a changing attitude towards uh, mental stress in the workplace uh, today, uh, but do we think that that is changing too fast? Um, I think certainly working in, in, in the public sector, uh, the life is always challenging and, and we um, uh, so have to uh, uh, face up to, to growing demands of a, of a population that is um, not only living longer, but, uh, but living longer in what will be described as um, uh, perhaps with long-term conditions. So that, that places more demands on our, on our health and, and care service. And uh, alongside that, we have a a, a, a workforce that, that um, isn't necessarily growing uh, at the same rate as, as, as the uh, um, population. So we have to think about how we can use what we have in a, um, a more productive way um, and perhaps a more effective way. Uh, and, and stress, as I say, is, is a big part of that. And really recognizing that the key to, um, to, to improving and being effective in health, health and care is really harnessing what are very motivated people working with within health and care and using their ideas to help be part of that transformation. Let's go back to the very beginning of your career when you were first starting out. Was there a particular influence or individual who formed the way that you lead today? 
So working certainly as, as a GP is a very um, people-focused um, uh, uh, work, and, and you're working primarily with individuals, and that, that's really where, where I started my career. Um, but there, yeah, there were uh, some people that, that influenced me and, and um, sort of pointed out that, uh, that, that working in general practice is a very fulfilling career, uh, and one where there are many opportunities. So starting off certainly as a young GP in a small rural practice in the, in the northwest of England, I was working with a very sort of um, small population in, in, in a village uh, and being able to see how they lived and, and, and worked their lives. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and really the, so to be able to then look at the, so the opportunities and how I could get out of that consulting room and then sort of, um, to have an influence outside. So to become more part of the community. Absolutely. But by community, I don't necessarily mean the community you're working with on a day-to-day basis. We all live and work in, in much bigger communities and those connections. Mm-hmm. And that's really what um, sort of, uh, pointed, drew me towards having a role outside of a practice and, and more of a leadership role uh, where I can work and network and influence people outside of my sort of close circle of work. And of course, before the war, uh, the GP would have been the center of, of village or town life, uh, a much larger figure than after, uh, after the nationalization of health services. Do you feel that that is something that is lost in communities today? No, I think certainly the GP has a certainly central role within a community, but, but it's, it's not the, the single point of, uh, of contact. And I think, um, so the, the, the wider role of, of teams within communities, uh, we, we use a, a much wider network of, uh, of professionals and individuals to be able to deliver care wrapped around people and the communities that they, they live and work in. Um, so I, I, I think that, that the GP as being the first point of contact or the, the main point of contact is, uh, um, is not really how we're, we're developing sort of teams in, in, in our communities today. What's the main challenge facing GPs today? I think it's increasing demand. Mm-hmm. And um, so if you reflect back to something when I started my career in the mid-90s, um, figures would suggest that people would contact or would see their GP um, around two times a year. Current figures suggest that that's nearer 10 times a year. Really? Without really, without really a significant increase in the number of GPs providing that care. The the, the, so the, uh, the work that we do on a day-to-day basis, so as, as, a, as a GP, so early in my career, it was sustainable to be involved in 24-7 cover and working out of hours because there were gaps in, in, in the day to be able to, um, yeah, to, to do to all the things you need to do to, to eat and sleep, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Today, that's just not possible. The intensity of the work and people working in helping care is, is full on all day and that opportunity to be able to provide that 24-7 cover to a community, I think has been lost and it's not, no longer possible. Now, just going back to the subject of leadership, if I was to ask you to identify objectively the greatest leader, living or dead, who would that be? Gosh. Um, I know it's a tricky one. It is. Um, greatest leader, um, well, there are so many to choose from, aren't there? Yeah, sure. Uh, of course, um, we get lots of people who, who speak of the likes of uh, Lord Nelson or, or Churchill, um, but there yeah. are other figures out there as well, aren't there? So certainly working within um, the city that I work, I mean, I, I, would, I would describe somebody like um, Norman Lamb, 
as somebody who connects with his with, with his community, mm-hmm. a, a politician, but someone who really developed a, an interest in, in, in mental health and, and well-being, and 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 has used his uh, sort of uh, connection to his own community to to, to be able to influence change, certainly to improve the emphasis and um, uh, sort of parity of esteem of people with mental health problems, and mm-hmm. recognizing that uh, that's such an important part of well-being and how how we we keep ourselves healthy. Well, unfortunately, our time together is very quickly drawing to its close. But what does the next 12 months have in store for NHS Kurnow Clinical Commissioning Group? So NHS Kurnow, so we represent the population of Cornwall and the and we have very real challenges with trying to, uh, in, in what's a rural, isolated community, to develop and further improve our workforce. And with some real, I would describe as a quiet revolution going on with our ground-level workers who um, are being empowered to, to recognize their ability to influence and change how they work. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. And I do hope that you come back uh, on the show in a, in a relatively short order. Uh, Ian, thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Ian Chorton, chair of NHS Kurnow Clinical Commissioning Group. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. We're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool. Many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and... um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a, there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and he's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood. And of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that, of that caliber, 
can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with with a manager like like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players and of course they become your friends who did you look at to at the time uh when to inspire confidence in yourself was it more was it peters i think probably well i was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players i did again mm. again extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of england and west ham and martin peters who was a fantastic player and some, as far as martin's concerned i think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more looks upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy in the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top. He's absolutely vital for a, a, for a business football team in any walk of life to be successful and it's quite evident I was in the motor trade for a long time as well selling car warranties to car dealerships and you could almost tell when you walked into the business uh, in a, many of the car dealerships you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all and so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to, to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, plane came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alfred Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and, of course, your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict, but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn for you, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, my family, 
we've got somebody in the group who doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learnt over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's, that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, and Denmark. Mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games, and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. so mm. I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I, like I was going to play, and didn't start because of just a lack of form, I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know, in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Well, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot, and it's there, and people, players talk about it, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind, that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of, very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we had some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players. Um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not 
you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, The other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while and said, oh, dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um... Oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely, but I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then, but we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want, you want, you've got time, I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on, go on. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a. a at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honour. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm-hmm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but then I again, found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did... Uh, um, but then again, if you, put, if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but th- there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened. When you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by by quick one way or the other? people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of the uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably... Yeah, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, 
you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch, people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a, in a natural leader? Um. Well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the best example about a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude. Is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but. There's more than just being good players in football. It's that a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck that's absolutely leadership he'd be the best example of course in in football terms today Uh, easily easily and of course going back not that long ago Alex Ferguson who's just absolutely Mm. you've got to take him as the first example because Klopp's only done this over a period of time a short period of time but if you look at the 25 26 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United and subsequently since he's gone how they've that they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they. Uh, Ron Green was yeah the answer straightforward answer is yes um, they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes I can elaborate as much as you want but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes uh, and with um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so but um, I'm conscious of the um, time um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate and I wouldn't pick any one player out. I think looking at so that. So many. Yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned. 
uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding and uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And going back from an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago. Of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big Absolutely. a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great players. We have some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, the the, the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts, but with it. Yes, the word is is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk sometimes. Together, everyone achieves more. And that, that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-minded, uh, single dedication, Dedication to the job, um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But if you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not. Uh, they will not switch off for for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's you completely focus. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over the go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.